This is Chapter 79 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 80 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, magic, mystery, and a wild prison break. In Time's Convert, we travel back to the world of magic and history as weaved by New York Times bestseller Deborah Harkness. For those of you who aren't familiar with her books, her All Souls trilogy is a mix of historical fiction and fantasy where witches, vampires, demons, and humans all coexist, although not always in harmony. The books have sold millions of copies worldwide in more than a dozen different languages, and a TV adaptation of the books is currently airing in the UK. I recently caught up with Deborah, who's in the middle of her U.S. book tour. You take us back to the All Souls universe with this book. What was it like for you to return to the world of Diana and Matthew and everyone else? It felt sort of like a family reunion for me to go back in and dive into the world and start exploring it from different people's points of view. It was also just a lot of fun, obviously, to meet up with old friends. And the backstory of Marcus, Matthew's son, is the focus of this book. And the American Revolution is front and center. Did you know when you wrote the earlier books that this was the time period that Marcus would come from? I did know. And that's because for me, there was always a really fascinating comparison between Matthew, this very medieval father who was a very strong man of faith, and what I saw as being sort of Marcus's defining characteristics, which were very much shaped by the 18th century Enlightenment. And I just thought it would be a great generational conflict to set up that kind of historical chestnut of man of faith versus man of reason, if you will, even though I personally think those sorts of distinctions are overdrawn in in the way people think of it. Um, you know, it's, it sort of suggests that somehow if you're a man of faith, you're not a man of reason. And if you're a man of reason, you, you don't have any faith, which is not true. And that's one of the fun things to explore for me in Marcus's backstory. And Thomas Paine is central to that backstory, the man, his writings, and he even influenced the title of your book, right? He did. Um, so I started reading Thomas Paine. Uh, it, it was my first, the first thing I read when I decided I was going to write about a book about Marcus. I thought, well, let's just, what would Marcus um, have had sort of on his bedside table, if you will, in, in the 18th century? And I realized pretty quickly that given where he came from, um, given some of the more radical political sentiments in Western Massachusetts, as opposed to the Eastern part of the state, and also just uh, because of Marcus's ideas about liberty and equality and freedom, that Paine would have been a real favorite of his. And so, um, you know, Paine is somebody that a lot of people have heard of. They've heard of Common Sense, but very few people have actually read the text itself. And it's quite radical, and it's much more socially radical than, for example, some of the things that are in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. So uh, for me, really kind of imagining that Marcus was a real fan of Paine's work and really believed in Paine's radical political philosophy helped to shape his character. Now, you're a historian by trade. This isn't your emphasis. So this had to be a lot of fun with you to do the research. Did you get lost a little bit in all of it? I did get lost. Yes. I, it was wonderful for me to be a student again, because as you say, it's not my area of specialty. I do teach the 18th century in the sort of Western Civ 
intro history class, but it's it's not my thing. Um, and so I I know a bit. I certainly know where to go for good information on it. Uh, and it was a little bit like having an immersion class in, in 18th century history. I read so many fascinating books. So I feel like I've come out of it uh, a better teacher for my students, which is wonderful. So now the American Revolution, the men who played a large role in it, they're super popular because of a, a, a very popular hit musical. Uh, were you worried at any point that readers might be tired about hearing about that era and those people? Gosh, you know, I didn't think about that. I probably should have thought about that. But I also knew that I was telling a very different story, one that was influenced by my own family history. Uh, my family lived in Western Massachusetts. They were part of a group of, of, of people who did not like the kinds of compromises that were brokered at the Constitutional Convention in, in the early days of our republic. And so for me, I knew that Marcus represented a different uh, sort of losing side, if you will, in the revolution. And I knew that most of those characters wouldn't show up for and if they did show up, Marcus wouldn't have liked them very much. So sorry, Alexander Hamilton, but Marcus would not have been a fan. <laughs> you know, there's a really sweet dedication at the end of your book where you mention your father and he and Marcus share some common geographical roots. That's right. That's right. My dad's family uh, actually got kicked out of Scotland in the 17th century, came to Boston, which is where I'm talking to you from this morning, and then, uh, and then traveled out to western Massachusetts and settled in the very same place where Marcus's family came from. So, again, it was um, my father and I, one of the things we did uh, as a father-daughter duo was to travel around western Massachusetts doing grave stone rubbings and taking pictures of old houses that my ancestors built, et cetera. And so for me, this book really is a kind of um, a memory of my dad and those those family times that we shared together. So you, you wove your, your own history into Marcus's history in a way. I did in a way. I think, you know, you always inform your characters, or at least I always inform my characters with aspects of, of myself. I think it's very common for people reading to think, oh, well, the, the author is the main character. That's actually not true. I'm, I'm no more Diana than I am Marcus, in a, in a way. Um, it just is more noticeable that Diana is a historian, and I'm a historian, and she likes to row, and I like to row. But uh, all of the characters are me. And so to be able to weave that family history um, from centuries ago into Times Convert was a real, a real treat for me. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the TV adaptation of your earlier trilogy. What has it been like to see the characters you created come alive on the screen? It's been so amazing. Uh, there are moments when it is absolutely spooky and uncanny because it is uh, the characters, uh, the cast members who bring those characters to life, the sets are just so evocative of what I saw in my own head that it makes me wonder how it could be possible for it to be so on target. Um, and so it's just been a real thrill. And I think it's been a real thrill for your fans as well, right? 
I think so. You know, for it's it's a little hard for me to say because I'm uh, the, the the second episode of the show will be on uh, tomorrow at the time of this taping, and you know the I'm far away from it. I'm in the states. I can't watch the show any more than my U.S. fans can. But hearing uh, about the reactions from the U.K. and the excitement of the fans, they they seem to really have taken. Um, on board the idea that, you know, this is, this is an adaptation, but it's an adaptation that's really true to the spirit of the books and they are embracing the show as such. And what a relief that is um, for that to, to, to be the case. Any idea when your U S fans will get to, to embrace it and love it? I have heard from Sundance and Shudder that it will be early in 2019. So not too long to go just a few months i think that uh when sundance and shutter acquired it they really wanted to have a good think about how best to promote it and how best to get the word out that they were the ones doing the broadcasting and so they wanted to take their time and do it right and you can't fault them for that oh of course not so i know a lot of readers including myself hope you keep up with these characters is that the plan that is the the plan loosely conceived uh I, i'm always a bit reluctant to tell anybody what is going to be next just because I often don't know things do tend to change and shift around uh, for me I'm not somebody who just says okay this is strategically speaking this is the next book that I should write and I'm going to go out and set out and write it but I can imagine wanting to write more books like this that just do these wonderful deep dives into character backstories that don't necessarily have life and death stakes like the trilogy had but instead uh, just have the quiet personal stakes of growth and change that I think will resonate with readers. And finally, if you had to choose, would you want to be a vampire, witch, demon, or stick with being a warm blood? You know, I think I would still stick with being a warm blood. I think vampires, I think Waking up for thousands of Mondays would be very tough. I think that witches have way too much responsibility, and I think demons are tragically misunderstood. So I think I will just uh, stick with my lot in life, which is a normal, everyday human. And to go back to the book, you do touch on what it's like to become a vampire and how, how those new days or the inf- being an infant is, is really not all it's cracked up to be. I did. I felt like I had not ever really thought through what that transformation process would be like to go from warm-blooded human to vampire. And I had a really wonderful time reading uh, childhood development books and trying to imagine how those stages of childhood development would be mapped on to a vampire's life. And I kept thinking that because it was vampire blood that was at work, the transformations would be very much accelerated. So for me, sort of when a, what a human goes through in their second year is what a vampire goes through on their second day. And the same thing about 13 or 21, you know. So it was really fun to think, oh, okay, what would the terrible twos look like for a vampire. I love that that's the approach you took. Yeah, people ask me, you know, did you do all kinds of research in vampire literature? And I always have to say with some embarrassment, I might be the only person in the world who has never read Bram Stoker's Dracula. (laughs) So no, I didn't. And partly I didn't because my vampires are very different. They can go out in daylight and they uh, don't have fangs and they can have things that aren't blood. And so, you know, I've always had a different kind of vampire. And I thought, well, 
why not start with uh, the classics, childhood development, and, and go from there? So I had a lot of fun with that. I also want to say I got a personal kick out of you using one of my favorite German sayings, which is das ist mir Wurst. Yes. I love that. That I gotta, and das Pudelskern are my two favorite um, things in the whole world. <laughs> so, yes, um, that is one of the things that one of my uh, Swiss uncles used to say all the time. Uh, das ist my, my mind first. So. Yes, so that, that gave me a, a chuckle out loud moment on the subway. <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, and this, I think, for, for readers of the trilogy, one of the things that I hope that they... Uh, they take away from this book is is that you know is to reconnect with the sense of fun in this world to have a little bit of a playtime in this world as opposed to again having a kind of a you know a, a, a fight to the death or, or a more thrillery kind of book this this really should make you chuckle in a number of places so and it's a great escape. The new book, Times Convert, Deborah Harkness. This was such a thrill for me to talk to you because I've been a fan since. Your books came out, so I look forward to everything else you have to write. Oh, thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate it, and it was great to talk with you. In June 2015, a story that Hollywood couldn't have scripted better itself was playing out in upstate New York. That's when two killers escaped from the Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora with the help of a prison seamstress. Does that ring any bells? For 23 days, the country was captivated by the investigation and the manhunt. New York Daily News reporter Chelsea Rose Marcius was on the front line and chronicles the entire incredible story in her book, Wild Escape. She spoke with our Peter Haskell. What made this incident so compelling? There were a number of factors that just captured the imaginations of people when they heard about this prison break in upstate New York. There were two guys, as you mentioned, out on the run after they escaped from Clinton Correctional Facility for three weeks. No one could find them. And the state poured in millions trying to figure out where these two guys were. They brought in troops from downstate. They brought in all of their correctional officers to the to the area of the Adirondacks. It was like trying to find two needles in a haystack. And these guys were just... It was amazing how they were able to evade law enforcement for so long. I mean, you have six million acres of Adirondack Park. Nobody had escaped from Clinton Correctional in this way, not for years and years. And the escapes of the early 20th century were nothing compared to this. And not only were they able to get past the barrier of this big wall, this big concrete wall that surrounds the the prison, they were then able to weather the elements out in Adirondack Park, which if you've ever been up there, if your you know, listeners have ever been up there, it is quite a task. I mean, you're dealing really with the elements of nature and uh, flies and, you know, all sorts of animal and wildlife trying to figure out your way and navigation is tough with no cell phones, no way to use a GPS. And they were able to make some pretty good headway for quite some time. You know, it's interesting to me in remembering the story when it was happening, it After a while, it seemed almost as if people were kind of rooting for them. There was something about it that they were able to escape what seemed like such difficult circumstances. Do you think that was the case? Absolutely. I mean, you had different camps. You know, there were some people that were just frightened out of their minds, wondering if they were going to have two convicted murderers in their backyards. They were very scared. But others, you know, it was almost like they were... 
as you said, rooting for them, kind of rallying behind them. They had gotten so far and they wanted to see if they could keep going. And it was this sort of cat and mouse game. and You didn't know who was going to come out on top. So you've got this hulking facility of a building that you describe in detail in your book. How did these guys do this? Yeah, and as you said, Peter, the sheer presence of Clinton Correctional Facility, it, it you can feel it as you go and drive through Danamora. It is a very isolated place, and, and it is a huge facility that just imposes itself on the town below. Well, Matt and Sweat had had the idea. It was actually Matt's idea initially. Uh, so one, I just to, to interrupt yeah. for a second. The two escapees were David Sweat and Richard Matt. Yes. And they were both convicted killers. Yes, thank you. David Sweat, Richard Matt. And they had done some time at Clinton Correctional. They had been there for a little while. And David was uh, getting fed up with a few things that were happening at the prison. Namely, he was moved out of the work that he was doing in one of the tailor shops and uh, under you know various circumstances. And he felt that was a real blow to him. He, it was his form of unemployment at the prison. And Matt, who had been fed up with the prison for a while and their protocols and everything, told Sweat, you know, why don't we break out and we can get Joyce Mitchell who was the prison, one of the prison seamstresses at Clinton Correctional that actually oversaw the work Matt and Sweat did. Matt said to David, uh, you know, we can, we can get her help. She'll help us out. So Joyce Mitchell uh, ends up bringing a bunch of tools into the facility, which is obviously illegal, and she hides them in vats of raw hamburger meat. Now, there was a lot Which of Which is one of those stranger than fiction kind of things. <laughs> Absolutely. This is making of a Hollywood film, as the governor had called it, because it just one thing gets weirder after another. So she puts all of these tools, a punch, a chisel, things that they can use to help them break out into this uh, raw meat and she passes it through security which they weren't really looking at it they didn't pass it through the metal detector because this was commonplace at clinton people that worked at the facility were allowed to bring things in and out without necessarily being checked all the time so she knew how to make that happen and then she ended up getting the tools to matt who got them to david uh, through various means of tape, you know, Matt, Richard Matt tapes it to his chest, these various tools, with, you know, masking tape or whatever, and then hands them off to David. And the way they did that, where their cells were right next to each other on Clinton's honor block, which again, another little irony in the whole thing, they were on the honor block, which means you've had good behavior and you have the privilege of, of being on that particular cell block. Now, here is where, as they say, the plot thickens a little bit. You've got Joyce Mitchell, a civilian employee, and there's, you tell me, there's some kind of romantic link. I don't know if romantic is the right word, but she falls under the sway of at least one of these guys. Yeah, so as they're uh, planning this escape, which took about a a few months, it was a few months in the making, uh, David Sweat starts writing her these love notes. Now, David did not have any uh, sincere romantic feelings of love towards Joyce. He liked Joyce and uh, Joyce liked him and her feelings for him started to evolve. You know, she's this woman that's married uh, to a, a man who also works at Clinton Correctional or did. And she felt that, you know, she's middle aged, not getting paid much attention at home. Not saying that's true, but this was how she was feeling at the time. And David and uh, David Sweat and Richard Matt really capitalized on that. And Richard Matt 
as David's writing these love notes, is also feeding into this fantasy she worked up in her head of really a life apart from the one that she has known for so long, a life away from the prison, a life away from work, and this kind of small town where she had established herself with her family. Richard starts, you know, talking to her, and they they end up having one um, sexual uh, encounter. <laughs> encounter in the oh, there's a back room where they where they both worked at the um, in the industry building where they make prison uniforms. They call them the tailor shops, as I said before. And there's a little supply room uh, somewhere in the back there where they were able to make that encounter happen. So that fuel the media uh, mailstorm around the story as the details of the escape started to pour out. Let's take a step back. So if I'm not mistaken, you were reporting for the Daily News. You were up there covering this. How did you come about deciding to write this book? Well, as you said, you know, as I'm covering the story, I'm watching all of these state troopers. It was it was literally like watching a film before my eyes. I'm watching them look. I'm watching the corrections officers uh, get into the woods, and it, the the feeling was tense, and you could feel that tension for days and days. And as I'm up there reporting, I met a lot of people. I met people, uh, locals. I met different people that worked at the prison as uh, contractors, you know, fixing pipes and things like that. And as I'm talking to them, I just am enjoying the conversations. I'm enjoying the story. I feel like I'm in the story, which is a rare feeling as a reporter. I felt like so many times we're looking from the outside in where I'm almost part and the reporters up there were part of the whole narrative, right? And and I'm going to interrupt you. It's interesting to me is that people were willing to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. Which is not necessarily common. Yeah. You know, the the story captivated them just as much as it captivated people elsewhere. They were, for the most part, most people were excited to talk about it because this is a small town. Not many things happen up there that would catch the eye of the nation. And here we have one of the biggest stories that was national news for weeks happening in their little neck of the woods. And that was excitement. This is something they're going to be talking about for a long time. So people were really, you know, eager to talk about it. And the fact that I was actually up there while they uh, were on the run and then came up later, I'd established relationships with these people. That way I could come back to them and continue the narrative. And as we would talk about it, you know, my conversations with people I interviewed, they'd get excited all over again. It was almost like they were reliving it for the very first time. So back to the escape, Joyce Mitchell smuggles in these tools. The two guys start working. What did it take for them to actually get from inside to the outside? Yeah. So David Sweat had really orchestrated the plan to get out. Uh, Richard Matt was more the the thought guy and the process guy behind Joyce Mitchell and really getting her to continue to cooperate. Meanwhile, Dave is devising this plan, which succeeded. They essentially were able to cut holes in the back of their cells. And they did that through an air vent that allowed air to pass through the cell. They removed that uh, doing this, by the way, under the noses of the correction o- corrections officers. They did it in times where people were supposed to be in recreation, so that way their absence wasn't noticed. They would do it in the middle of the night, and they had to do it very quietly, so very slowly, uh, so that way nobody would hear and suspect anything. 
So they removed the air vents and eventually were able to make it out to the catwalks. And the catwalks are these stairs, a series of stairs of sorts that help lead people down into the bowels of the prison. Contractors use the walks for uh, being able to fix various things uh, going on in the back of the prison pipes and again and whatnot. So David and Matt eventually are able to descend the catwalks and David every night for months would go out and work his way through the route. He had no maps and he's trying to figure out a way out of the facility and he and he determines the best way to do this are there are tunnels below the prison that lead out to a manhole on a street beyond the wall of the that walls in the entire facility. And he knows if he can make it to that manhole, they can pop out of the manhole on the other side of the wall, pretty much going underneath the prison, out onto the street, and into the woods. Before we get to their life on the run, in observation, you talk about David and you talk about Matt. So there's there's, this familiarity with David Sweat. In the book, he's portrayed almost sympathetically. Mm. Do you see him as a sympathetic a sympathetic character? It's interesting you say that, Peter, because I was cognizant of how to portray him, and I, I I really thought a lot about it. On the one side, I don't want to give too much sympathy to someone who has committed a first degree murder. He was convicted. I want to interrupt one more time, just yeah. so. The way the thing ends, this is not a secret, is Matt mm-hmm. ends up dead mm-hmm. and Sweat ends up alive. So yes. go ahead. Yes. So I'd never been able to interview Richard Matt. So I had to base my descriptions and everything off of other people. David, however, I spent over 100 hours with him. And you'll hear me refer to him as David a lot and rather than Sweat because I'm used to talking to him and, you, you know, person to person. You usually address people by their first name. So with David, uh, you know, I spent tons of time with him and... My feeling on it was that, again, I can't make somebody that was convicted of first-degree murder a completely sympathetic character. But what I can do is help people and readers understand how someone in his life ended up at a point where he committed this crime. Again, not an excuse because there is no excuse. There's no excuse for obviously committing a murder. Uh, in, in this particular context, but there is an explanation. And he had a very uh, troubled ch- childhood. Um, he was really bounced around. He had two non- non-existent parents, essentially. His mother was in and out, dealing with her own issues. Her His dad was um, pretty much, you know, after he was a, a little baby, left him and only saw him twice after that. I've met his dad once, so I've seen him half as many times as David has in his life that he can remember. And... Again, not to, it's, you know, some people say, well, it was just a sob story for him. And I don't look at it that way. I look at every person as, as a very complex human being, and I'm trying to break it down. So not just for readers, but for myself, I'm trying to understand somebody's the best, I, the, at the best, the best way I can. And that was for me through exploring them in writing and really taking them all in. And by the way, when I interviewed David, you know, I told him, I said, look, I'm going to tell all of the things that you've been through, but the good comes with the bad and we can't ignore the bad. And there is a lot of bad here, and it has to be addressed. We know the story. It's a breakout. It was covered in the news in real time. And that was one of the interesting things to me, the insight from Sweat. What made this guy tick, and what made him eventually say, enough, I've got to get out? 
It was a culmination of factors, but essentially the tipping point was that he was working under Joyce Mitchell. There were allegations from an anonymous prisoner who he was pretty sure who that was that came forward to authorities at the prison, different various officials, and said that there was some sort of relationship between him and Joyce. Well, David is removed from that tailor shop where he worked because obviously uh, leadership does not want any kind of problems between uh, a civilian employee, Joyce Mitchell, and an inmate, David Sweat. And to buy things at the prison, you know, go to commissary, that's the little place where they, uh, for those uh, listeners who don't know, it's it's where prisoners can buy maybe some cereal or um, a sweatshirt or something like that. And uh, mostly, you know, food goods, right, food stuff. And you know, that was the money he when the money he made at the tailor shop was how he purchased those items. And really, that's it's almost your mainstay. You you need they he felt he needed those things to make prison life bearable. And he had been there for years and feeling like, you know what, I, I no longer have this privilege. There were other things that were going on that he did not like, just felt in general that they were being treated unfairly. I'm not saying they were. I'm saying that's how he feels sure. uh, or felt. And, uh, you know, when Matt proposed this idea, David said, why not? Because him and Matt were pretty much on the same line of thinking there. We we talked about the fact that the people in Danamora and the neighboring communities were willing to speak to you. Why did Sweat spend so much time with you? And do you think he was being straight or was he trying to sell his story, his line? Yeah, I. So when I went to the prison for the first time, it was March of 2016. I had visited David's mother the week before, and I asked her. I said, "Do you think you know David would talk to me?" And she said, "Yes, you know." And she said, "And by the way, you should bring some quarters for the vending machines, so that way, uh, you know, he doesn't like prison food. But if you buy him, you know, a fifty cent dollar bag of chips." That'll make him happy. I did only because, uh, you know, we have six hours of conversation. I was getting hungry in, in these uh, talks with him at the at uh, Five Points Correctional where he was imprisoned following the escape and following his capture. And so the first time I sit down with him, you know, again, I'm, I'm starving at that point. I came up from the New York City all the way up there, which is about 500 miles. And I say, you know, would you like some lunch? And he said, sure. So we, we get lunch. And I just told him straight. I said, look, I'm a reporter. Uh, I said, I worked for the New York Daily News. I report on the escape. And I was just interested in meeting you. So we got to talking. And by the end of the conversation, he said, you know, it's funny. I said, he goes, I've received a lot of letters uh, for requests for interviews, but you're the only one that has come up here. And he said, you know, I that's something I would have done. And he took a little bit of, I don't know, like it was a little bit of pride or whatever that I was doing something he felt he would do is just showing up and going there rather than writing a bunch of letters. So I, I, there was some sort of... Um, he felt comfortable with me because he was seeing who I was. And, you know, I, I when I interview people, I no matter if it's a, a police officer, a convicted killer, a mother of a, a son that was just shot and killed, I try to be my true authentic self. And and I hope that comes across in, in how I talk to people. And I, and I think it did with him. And I think that was a, a key factor. The one other thing was, you know, I, I really tried 
based on my life in New York to keep my word to him about when I would visit. Sometimes things worked out, sometimes they didn't, but I always did my best. And after that first visit, I told him, I said, can I visit you in two weeks? He said yes, and I made sure I was there in two weeks. Prison time for them is a lot longer than our time, and it was important for me to show him that I was serious about this. And uh, I think a trust developed from there. Back to the escape. They were on the run. They were in the wilderness. How did they escape, and and what led them to eventually split up? Yeah. So they go through the tunnels. As I mentioned, they go through the middle of the night, and, uh, you know, they uh, end up, you know, David establishes this escape route, and he says, okay, he tells Matt one day, today's the day, we're ready. So they go through the bowels of Clinton, the underneath the prison, they come up out of the manhole. Now, Joyce Mitchell, that prison seamstress, is supposed to be there Right. She's supposed to uh, be waiting for them to take them. She was going to drive them to Mexico. That was the original plan. Well, she doesn't show. She gets cold feet. So David and Matt say there's nothing we can do. We have to either we go back. We try this again another time or we continue on. And so they continued and they're really going through the woods. and They're going to head south toward Mexico. But then at some point, you know, they're like probably should start going north. And along the way, Richard Matt is ends up drinking a lot so they're breaking into a lot of different hunting cabins and these hunting cabins aren't really used during the summer it's off season there's a lot of them in upstate new york because there's a lot of hunters that that go up there for a big game and so they're able to break in all of these cabins that they come across in the adirondacks and a lot of those cabins just have booze in them so matt's drinking and long story short, David gets pretty fed up with that because Matt's drinking slows them down. It really impedes the escape. They split up and then um, Matt ends up getting shot and killed when he's by himself uh, inebriated. He's inebriated at the time. And then David uh, ends up in a field and it just so happens that a state trooper who I interviewed at some length, Jay Cook, as a technical sergeant in the New York State Police, he just happens to be passing by the road that is alongside the field where David is crossing. And that's pretty up high by the border of Canada. So he was very close to making it. And Cook ends up getting him. When you think about the people you spoke to and the, the work that you did, what what sticks out to you that was not part of the initial story coverage? What is the thing that you say to yourself, This makes this book different than the coverage. This makes it worth reading. Yeah. So David's participation was huge. The people that had followed the story had not heard from him. They heard from one little brief statement that he made uh, to a judge when he was um, after he was captured at one of his court hearings. But really, nobody knew who this person was. And I wanted to know who David thought he was. Right. And you asked me before, which I don't think I addressed, is do you think, you know, was David Sweat selling me the story? Um, I do think that most people you talk to want to be painted in the best light possible and they want to paint themselves in the best light possible. So there's always that factor. And I'm sure that factor uh, existed in, with David. Nobody wants to be painted in a poor light. Um, but I did my best to try to go beyond that and ask him the really tough questions so that way he would um, tell me with great honesty how he felt about things that he wasn't so proud of, things that he did, killing a sheriff's deputy. And that narrative 
wasn't really told before. So you have the guy that was able to do this and then, you know, not really hearing from him for so long. For me, that was really important. And that's why uh, the book in particular um, does something nobody else had done. The book is Wild Escape. It was written by Chelsea Rose Marcius. Thank you for coming and speaking about the book. Thank you so much, Peter. A different set of real-life events inspired Black Diamond Fall, the latest book from author Joseph Olshin. The disappearance of a college student and the vandalism of the farmhouse that once belonged to Robert Frost bookend this literary mystery set in Vermont in the winter. There's a central mystery to this book of yours, but it's really so much more. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about it? The mystery of the book really is a reflection of the mystery of real life. Uh, there was a student at Middlebury College in around 2010 who um, disappeared. He was actually staying um, at the college during winter break. Uh, The college was pretty much shut down. There were very few people on campus. And um, so when he went for a walk one night, um, he never came back, and it wasn't discovered immediately. But when it was discovered, he uh the the colleges and the um the townspeople tried to to find him and um that after a few months they gave up the search but then a few months after that his body was found at the bottom of the otter creek which is the large river river that runs through middlebury college what was it about this real life story that drew you to it well when you live in Vermont, uh, incidents like this have a great deal of resonance. And um, I had decided maybe around eight years ago to, to try and start writing about the real life events as they affected me. So, for example, in my previous novel, which was called Cloudland, I wrote about the murder of seven women that occurred over a 10 year period in the, in the end of the 80s. And um, a, a really close friend of mine discovered one of the bodies, and uh, it was a traumatic experience for her. And she just she told me the story over and over and over again, just so a psychic that I had been interviewing for that previous book told me the story of this disappearing young man, and how she had been called in to uh, talk to his parents as she tried to help the police figure out what happened. And um, being a mother herself, she was greatly affected by this young man's disappearance. So that made a very, very strong impression on me as well. Uh, So this is how I operate. And and I try to find my own autobiographical element that goes into these stories. Um, Some part of me, a large part of me has to be invested. Interestingly, a lot of writers of sort of uh, literature of suspense in mystery, um, write stories that um, involve characters that sometimes reappear. But for me, I have to have uh, some kind of personal history that, that goes and inve- invests itself in, in the story. And so these personal experiences with people who were involved with these, these crimes made a very strong impression on, on me. And um, also, too, um, concurrent with this young man's disappearance in this in this current novel is the uh, vandalizing of the Robert Frost farm, which occurred very close to where this young man disappeared in the same community. 
Um, it happened a few years later, but that also caused a great deal of uproar. And so I decided that I wanted to bring these two events together in a novel and, and, and try, as, my, as I wrote the novel, to, to find a connection between them. They seem like two s- such distinct occurrences that you wouldn't think you'd they'd be able to find some common ground, but you really do a good job of weaving the two stories together. Well, interestingly, though, I, I didn't know how I was going to weave them together when I began the book, and which sort of points to how I work. Uh, every time I begin a novel, it's really an act of discovery, and I, I begin with a very powerful emotion, and I, I work from there. And I have an idea of what I want to write about, and I have an idea of how I want to string two stories together. But I don't really know um, until I actually get there how I'm going to do it. And and interestingly, these two events that are linked to the novel, I I had trouble. I, I had them linked in a different way before, and it took me several attempts until I finally figured out the characters that would actually bring them together, the two the two characters in the book that um, that are involved, some in one crime and and peripherally in another. What's the emotion that was the jumping off point for this book? The emotion that was the jumping off point of this book was a middle aged man like myself who is struggling with getting older and. Um, the character in the novel, very much like me, is, is fit, gets a lot of exercise, is constantly challenging himself in ways, um, in you know, in physical activities, but also in love. And um, he gets involved with a much younger man um, who is the college student that disappears, and that you know, is is takes him to its, its limits in, in many different ways. And you do also touch on in this book is the not uh, the the feelings that people still have to same-sex relationships in some parts of the country in Vermont you know you think of a very liberal part of the country but there is this resistance there that you work into the book yes and actually I mean I I deal with it subtly but I I have to say that in a place as liberal as Vermont, you really do run into pockets of people that resist and don't want to deal with same-sex relationships. Um, and so that is not known, and, 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 what, and that's the point that I really want to make. And also, too, I think that as much as it's understood that young people are much more accepting of same-sex relationships – if you talk to people in their 20s who have come out of some of these colleges, they talk, they, they discuss the fact that that coming out actually they feel devalues them in terms of the rest of the student population. So in the case of the character uh, on whom I based the young character in my novel um, was actually a soccer player um, who went to a, to a different university and told me that there's no way that he could have come out. It just would have been impossible. Um, he would have lost friends and um, people would have distanced himself from him. And, and I know somebody that went to Dartmouth College who graduated two years ago who basically said the same thing. So I don't really think that the world is as accepting of it as we might assume they are. And, um, and one of the points of the novel that I'm trying to make is that this fear 
of not being accepted is what you know drives people to have secret relationships and to and to to make mistakes which could cost them their lives and another theme is skiing to sort of change subjects a little bit here and the, it opens yeah. at um a run called Black Diamond Fall, which seems very, very harrowing and ends a little a little bit badly for one of the characters involved. I know that you're an avid skier. Have you ever skied a, a backcountry trail like the one you describe? Yes, I have. And um and I've also had accidents. Not as bad as the one in the in the novel, but I've I mean, in the last ten years I've been injured enough to be out for the rest of the season. Um, so I understand injury. Um, and so I, I sort of drew from my experience of being injured to kind of write about this injury that was more grave than any injury that I've ever experienced. But yes, I have attempted some very, very difficult backcountry um, slopes. And in fact, uh, a couple of days ago, I was hiking in Vermont and I was walking up this slope that I actually skied down and I was really surprised at how I was able to negotiate it. So, um, but I've done that everywhere. I mean, it's one of my, skiing is my, it's really, it's my passion. And um, um, skiing is to this novel as swimming was to an earlier novel I wrote that was called Night Swimmer. You, we have mentioned that this is Vermont in winter, which is not a friendly atmosphere for someone who's disappeared um, in the cold and the snow. And there's something you bring up in the book, um, which is an idea that or a theory that I'd never heard of before, which is human hibernation. How did you stumble upon that? I I actually had heard about it um, and I saw a piece about it on, on television. And so I did some research. And um, and so because there are these incidents of people who, who have survived being in the snow because their body basically slows down, almost like uh uh, I don't know, like 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 um, like hibernation, but almost like cryogenics. They, they 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 freeze bodies because they think that at some point, if they can solve a disease, it's it's sort of like that. Uh, the body is in a state of shock, and it shuts down, but not completely. And somehow it can it can exist like that. Um, it, interestingly, this had a large played a larger role in the novel at one time, and I thought to myself, well because this is still being worked on, I don't want to sort of play too heavily on it. So I reduced it to a bit a conversation between um, a detective and his wife, who is a medical researcher. And so I just I plant the seed in the reader's mind, but I, it definitely doesn't really come to fruition. It, is, it isn't really something that's dealt with, except for the fact that this, this guy um, who cl- climbs into a, a bale of hay in the middle of the field and is, and is able to, you know, exist there for several days. I will say that I know when I came across it in the book, it, it planted also a, a seed of hope that maybe not everything was, was not everything was lost. I know. I know. <laughs> well, without giving away the ending of the book, I mean, I, you're not the first person <laughs> who said that <laughs> to me. Uh, and um, I mean, you know, you can I can I can say that the book the book is what it wanted to be, and I'm sure you've interviewed other writers who've said that once they create the characters, the characters sometimes dictate, you know, where the book is going. And of course, I had that experience as well with this. Once I really got underway, and once the characters, I was able to bring the characters to life. And you have an interesting perspective on the writing process and books in general because you're a publisher as well as an author. 
How have you seen the industry change over the years? Well, good question. When I first started out, I, there were many fewer authors, and there was a lot more attention to be given to books that came out. And now there are so many writing schools, um, MFA programs. Uh, there are so many people that want to be writers now, and it's just the the, mar- the market is really glutted, so that it, it's become a lot more competitive and. A really, really good book can be published and be completely ignored. Whereas in the in, you know twenty five or thirty years ago, that was that hardly happened. But and also too, there's this uh, this um, proliferation of, of self publishing which has gone on, and a lot of people are publishing their own books and getting some attention for them. And of course, that also crowds the market. Um, and and um, as much as I am very much behind self-publishing and, and, and I encourage some people to do it, the problem with self-publishing is that it, it doesn't – there isn't a standard of excellence that's maintained um, as there is when you – when all the books that are coming out are being published by publishing houses. I mean, any time I acquire a book, it goes through drafts and changes and editorial and um, – and, and self-published books don't don't usually do that unless the, the self-published the self-published author hires a freelance editor. And even then, it's different because when you're freelance editing a book, it's one thing. But when you're editing a book that your publishing house is going to be banking on for a livelihood, it's it's a different story. You're much more invested in it. And so, um, but then to publishing other people's work has really taught me more about my own and. In the, in the editorial process of working on other people's manuscripts, I've you know picked up quite a few lessons and even learned from some of the people whose work I've been editing. Um, I edit a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist uh, and uh, so I'm working on her second book now that she's but she's done with us and er, any exchange that we have is always informative and um, and I've actually learned quite a bit from her even though I am the editor and she's the author. Do you edit yourself, or do you have someone you trust to do that for you? I, I usually give my work to friends. Um, I, I, no, no author can really edit themselves, and and even and nobody wants to admit this, but most of the authors that I know who are very, very well known, they have people in whom they trust their work. Um, I think maybe in the 19th century, writers didn't need to rewrite as much, but for some reason, in the culture of today, it seems to me that everybody. Even the best writers need to be edited. So, um, so I do trust my work to other people. I, I, I would never trust myself to, to write a book and, and, and have it published without getting another pair of eyes on it, even before it goes to the eyes of the, of the editor who's going to publish it. So I know that this literary mystery was sort of a departure from what you usually write. Are you working on another one? Are you going to switch gears in the future? What's next? Well, you know, it's a literary mystery, but it's it's my own sort of brand of it. Um, I wrote sort of quote unquote literary novels that were pretty narrative before, and so I kind of when I went into with my last two books, I, I upped the the um, the narrative tension, and um, and so it sort of brought these books in the realm of sort of thrillers or suspense or mystery, but it's the same writing, uh, it's the same attention to character. Um, I'm just just 
I'm finding my way, you know, into into a sort of a new genre, let's say. So, but I keep trying to embrace the principles of writing and the pacing that I that I developed earlier in my career. Anyway, the, the book I'm working on now is um, a novel based on a professor who was a mentor to me when I was in high school and in college, and um, he was a professor of Italian literature at a small college in Westchester. And uh, in the midst of our friendship, he he uh, mysteriously committed suicide, and um, it was never really understood why, what, why that happened. He didn't really leave any notes. And so uh, that's I'm, I'm, I've gone back to that now, and I'm writing about that. So I've, I've based the last two novels in Vermont, but the, the book I'm writing now takes place almost entirely in Westchester County, um, outside New York City, where I grew up. Is writing therapeutic for you? To a certain extent. Um, it has been in the past. Uh, not so much now. In my earlier novels, I really had, I think I had a lot of things to work out, childhood things. When I was um, six, I witnessed a drowning of another child, and I, I wrote a novel about that, and that was that was an experience that really bedeviled me for many years. And I think that writing about it helped me master it. Nowadays, it's, it's therapeutic in the sense that it occupies me, and it, it sort of reduces the levels of, of daily anxiety, but it doesn't, I don't feel that I'm working out anything the way I, I did when I used to write. And, and I just think that's a, that's a product of getting older. Um, I think that the, your, your, your experiences in life that are most traumatic happen when you're younger. And, um, and if you have a traumatic experience when you're older, it probably takes a long time for you to get enough distance on it to be able to write about it um, effectively. It's it's almost like an evolution process, I guess. Right, it is. You evolve as you write, and um, and your attitude about writing changes, just like your attitude about life changes. Well, the new book is Black Diamond Fall. Joseph Olshin, thank you so much for for taking the time and talking to us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next week, we tackle the thousand books you must read before you die. I know there's a book or two I think should be on that list. If you want to share your thoughts, tweet us at WCBS 880 Books or email us at books at WCBS880.com. That's books at WCBS880.com.